Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. Enjoy a drink with us while we tell you some wild stories of the brutal and bizarre variety. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we like to end our time with a chaser. So Declan, tell me what the brutal crime is that you're going to tell us about today. So today I will be talking about Israel Keys. Okay. I think I know a little bit about that one and he sounds like not a very nice guy. No, not at all. How about you? What are you doing this week, Mom? So I am going to be talking about Tom and Eileen Lonergan. They were a couple who went on a scuba diving trip that went horribly wrong. And the drink that I am bringing today for our little attempted happy hour is the hurricane cocktail. So not because the Lonigans were in a hurricane, but I'll explain a little bit more in a second. So the hurricane cocktail is two ounces of light rum, two ounces of dark rum, one ounce of lime juice, freshly squeezed, one ounce of freshly squeezed orange juice, half an ounce of passion fruit puree, which I learned is a really difficult thing to say <laughs> quickly. So a uh, half ounce of simple syrup, one teaspoon of grenadine, and a garnish of an orange half wheel and a preserved cherry, which I don't have any of the garnish. So big surprise, I didn't garnish mine. <laughs> the steps to making this drink are to, one, add the liquids into the shaker with ice and shake until well chilled. Then you're going to strain all of that yummy goodness into a large hurricane glass over fresh ice. And if you have your garnishment, then garnish. But So I went a little off script because I didn't have the garnish and I don't have a hurricane glass, but it is what it is. All so. the basic components are still there. Yes, it's going to taste the same whether it's in a hurricane glass or not. So, all right. Are we ready to try this drink? Yep, I'm ready. Okay, let's go. Mmm. That's pretty tasty. Delightful. Delightful, is it? Uh, I've never had a hurricane, but I've always wanted to try one, so I'm glad that we got to give it a whirl this time. Yeah. So I wanted to give a little bit of history about our drink. Because, of course, that's fun. So the history of the hurricane, it was actually named after the shape of the glass it uses, which is similar to a hurricane lamp. What's a hurricane lamp? A hurricane lamp was often made uh, using gas, oil, or kerosene. And it used a glass chimney to protect the flame from high winds that are common in the region due to hurricanes. The region being New Orleans, Louisiana. 
So it was invented in New Orleans at Pat O'Brien's, a bar in that area, and it was invented in the 1940s. Mm. They uh, made this concoction with rum because rum was easier to get a hold of than whiskey. And they had a lot of rum. So they were like, what are we going to do with this? Let's just start making some stuff. And the bar continues to make this drink, selling over half a million glasses of it every year. Jeez. Yeah, that's a lot of hurricane. So the reason I picked this drink was because the couple in the story, the Lonergans, were from Louisiana, and that's where the drink the state that the drink originated in. Nice. I like that connection. Okay, Mom, tell us about your bizarre story for today. Okay, so based on a listener request, we decided to do something different in October because it is the spooky ooky time of year. So in honor of the scary season, we're going to tell one story each week that is a true tale that has inspired a scary movie. My scary tale today is the story of Tom and Eileen Lonergan. They are missing and presumed dead. Their disappearance inspired the movie Open Water, which was released in 2003. Ooh. So the I movie like, is... I, I don't like Open Waters at all, so I'm sure this will be very freaky to listen to. We watched the movie again last night, and it definitely made me a little nervous now that I know the true story that it was based on. I don't think when I watched it the first time that I realized it says that it was inspired by true events, but I didn't know the details of the Lonergan stories. So now that I know the details and watching it again, I was like, oh, I get that part now. Oh, that makes sense why they put that in there. So it was a little bit more realistic had some more insight to the movie than most. Yes. Yes. Because I remember when we, it's been a long time since we watched it, but when we watched it the first time, both dad and I were, were thinking and talking about how, well, how do they even know this is how it happened? This is all just supposition as to like what the events were. But now that I know the story and some of the parts behind it, I'm like, oh, so that's why they made this part of the movie and made it sound like this is what happened because of these other details. We'll get into that a little bit more. So this movie is described as a survival horror thriller. In the movie, a couple goes on a scuba diving trip and finds themselves stranded, left behind by their dive ship, miles away from land and in shark-infested waters. In the movie... Um. Yeah, your favorite concept, right? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. 
In the movie, the error occurs when two passengers on the dive ship are accidentally counted twice. So the crew do not realize two of the divers are still unaccounted for. Here is the true story which inspired the movie. Tom Lonergan and Eileen Haynes were a couple from Louisiana who attended Louisiana State University. Nice. They were they were married in 1988. Ten years later, Tom and Eileen had completed a tour with the Peace Corps, where they had been working as teachers on islands in the South Pacific. When their trip ended, they planned a three-month-long trip around the world before they intended to move back to the U.S. One of their stops was in Australia. They were staying at a hostel in the Queensland region. Tom and Eileen were both experienced scuba divers and looked forward to diving at the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. On January 25, 1998, Tom and Eileen boarded the dive ship run by the Outer Edge Dive Company with 24 other divers. They were scheduled for three stops during the day. The last stop was at St. Crispin's Reef, which is part of Australia's Great Barrier Reef. They arrived around 2 p.m. Due to the warmer temperature of the water, several divers opted to not use a wetsuit and just dive in swimsuits. However, Tom and Eileen chose to wear wetsuits. The dive company crew called the divers back to the ship after 40 minutes of diving, and the boat arrived back at the marina around 5 p.m. After the boat returned, a couple of bags with Tom and Eileen's belongings was found by the crew on the dive boat. It was set aside, and staff from the boat thought it would be picked up soon. But two days later, it still hadn't been claimed. So apparently it was pretty common for divers to leave something on the ship or leave something on the boat, and they would set it aside and somebody would come pick it up later that day or the next day. And so that's basically what happened with these two bags. Nobody really thought anything of it until they weren't claimed. Two days after the trip, the boat's captain and co-owner of the dive company, Jeffrey Nairn, also known as Jack, realized the bags still hadn't been picked up. He also discovered that two scuba dive tanks were missing. He realized there was a chance they had forgotten divers on the reef. And it sounds like he was... Oh, shit is right. It sounds like he was the first one to realize it two days later. So that's a long time. I definitely don't want to do whatever excursion they're doing with that company. (laughs) Well, that dive company is out of business, spoiler alert, oh, okay, because good. of this whole thing. Yeah. The dive company called the hostel where Tom and Eileen were staying to see if they had checked in recently, but were told that the couple hadn't been seen since they left the morning of the dive. So when they checked in at the dive company, they had to write down where they were staying, contact information. So that's how the dive company knew where to look for their room where they were staying at. Law enforcement was notified after they realized that they hadn't been at the hostel and an investigation was started as well as a search mission. The investigators reviewed the procedures on the boat. Divers were separated into groups by experience with inexperienced divers being assigned an instructor. But since Tom and Eileen were experienced, they chose to go without an instructor and they wanted to just dive together as a team because they were so experienced. They'd been diving in Fiji and 
other areas all around the world. So they weren't concerned about going off on their own, apparently. Another thing that happened uh, with the procedures was that one crew member was designated the dive master, which would sometimes change throughout the trip, which is part of the problem. If one person is supposed to be the dive master and keeping track of everything, and then somebody else ends up taking over that position, then halfway through the trip, they might not be keeping the same information. The dive master was supposed to... It's like playing telephone as a kid where... Yes. You don't get all the information that you need. Right. And that, I think, is one of the things that they were saying as to how it got missed that they didn't end up back on the boat after the check-in. Um. The dive master was supposed to write down when each diver left and returned to the boat. But there was some discrepancy among the crew as to who was responsible for keeping the log of dive times. So if one person started the the log and got halfway through it, then somebody else took over. They might not have kept the proper information. The first two dive stops showed that Tom and Eileen had been about 10 to 15 minutes late each time when they were checking back in onto the boat. At St. Crispin's Reef, the log showed that they entered the water at 2.20 p.m., but there was nothing written down for their return time. The skipper was responsible for the final head count, though, and one crew member said the skipper had instructed him to make the head count and mentioned that two people had just jumped overboard, So the crew member added those two people to the running grand total or to the running total, making it a grand total of 26. So I guess this crew member had counted 24. The skipper said, oh, I need you to do the head count. And two people just jumped off the ship. So he he thought, oh, okay, we'll we'll put those people back on. And that's the 26. Okay. Yes. For three days, little bit, little bit. So for three days, the area was searched both by sea and by air, but Tom and Eileen were not discovered. There had been severe storms in the area and the search had to be called off. So it was two days before anyone noticed them gone. And then they searched for three days and still didn't find them. So we're looking at close to a week before anything was finalized. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to find people like after the first 12 hours, but that's in on land. It's probably way harder in the water. Right. Well, and you're drifting and I mean, nobody knows if they tried to swim for something, if they decided to just stay and hope that someone would come back looking for them. Um, there was, you know, in the in the movie, they show that the couple is in the water and they're, you know, floating around for about eight hours or so. And then the next morning, someone realizes that they're gone. And this was a lot longer than that in reality, which is even more terrifying. Several days and weeks after the couple went missing – some dive items started washing ashore in different locations. One of them was a woman's wetsuit. The wetsuit was the size Eileen would have worn. There was damage to the wetsuit with cuts that could have come from coral. 
Originally, it was suggested that it was shark bites, but experts looked at it and said, no, that's from like rubbing up against the coral and the coral cut the suit. The suggestion was made that Eileen removed the suit herself either due to compromised mental status due to dehydration or because the suit was uncomfortable. It wasn't her suit. It was just a generic suit. It wasn't specifically designed for her. So it would have been chafing and maybe causing some damage. So because it had just had a few cuts on it, they think that she just took it off because whatever reason, no one really knows. Another item was an inflatable buoyancy life vest with Tom's name written on it. And these were things that were found on shores and area, you know, within, I think it was like 65, 75 miles or something like that of where they had been left in the ocean. So he had a life jacket from the diving company that had his name on it? No, it was his personal dive vest. So um, divers wear an inflatable vest that you can increase the air that's in the vest and decrease it. So it helps to control your buoyancy in the water. And his Mm -hmm. was his personal one with his name on it. Okay. On a nearby island, a dive fin with Eileen's name was found. Other items were later found in other locations, including an underwater camera and two dive tanks, as well as more of Eileen's equipment with her dive vest and hood. Both dive vests that had been recovered had been unbuckled, which meant that they had been deliberately taken off. And there's no real explanation, obviously, because it's unknown why they would have taken their vests off, but... The idea is that they were delirious from dehydration. They were floating in the water. Maybe they got um, hypothermia, which when you're in the late stages of hypothermia, apparently it makes you really hot. And so people shed their clothes. And so that was another suggestion that they got hypothermia and took their clothes off. And that's why everything was taken off. But nobody knows. Hmm. Another item recovered in the months following the couple's disappearance was a dive slate, which is often used by divers to communicate underwater. It's basically like a whiteboard where they can write to each other and then show each other what they're writing so that they can communicate below the surface. This is the scary part. The slate stated, quote, Monday, January 26, 1998, 8 a.m. So this would have been the day after. Um, Quote, Monday, January 26, 1998, 8 a.m. To anyone who can help us, we have been abandoned on Agin Court Reef by MV Outer Edge. Please help to rescue us before we die. Help. Unquote. Shit. So chilling and scary and sad. I, I, I'm... I can't even think of words to be like, how would I feel if I were in that situation? What would I do? How would I react? And I don't even know. I've been diving, but thankfully I was never left anywhere. (laughs) The only thing I could think of is just fucking swim as far and as hard as you can. Yeah. 
So the police, yeah, the police concluded their investigation after six months and submitted their findings to the coroner. It was their conclusion that the Outer Edge Dive Company was responsible for the couple being left at sea because they didn't follow adequate safety measures. I would agree with that. I I mean, it was their responsibility to make sure that everybody got back on the ship, and they obviously didn't do that because those people were left behind. Yeah, that that's pretty big fuck up on their part. Say so. Yep. A coronial inquest started in September of 1998, which was a public hearing with the goal of determining the cause of death and the circumstances around the death. The prosecution blamed the dive company and the boat captain, Jack Nairn, and recommended criminal charges be brought against him. Since Tom and Eileen's bodies were never found, there were numerous speculations as to what happened to them. It was even suggested that they faked their own deaths. Mm, I think they got eaten by a sea monster. A sea monster. Yes, it came out of the Great Barrier Reef where it's been hiding this whole time right next to the Loch Ness Monster and it ate them. The Kraken. Yes, the Kraken. There were multiple sightings of people thought to be Tom and Eileen, but their bank accounts were never touched and their insurance policies were not cashed in. There's no evidence that this theory is true. I can't imagine anyone really suggesting that. Like, why would you do that of all things? They weren't known, like, they weren't in trouble with the law. They weren't trying to hide from anyone. They were just people who had just finished a tour working as Peace Corps volunteers, basically. So why would they just be like, oh, you know what? I think we're going to fake our own death and just disappear. It's crazy. Yeah, that that doesn't seem very plausible to me. No. And then somebody uh, in one of the sources I was listening to brought up the point that how how many factors are involved in it if you're going to fake your own death? So you have to find a dive company that's going to quote unquote forget you or that is going to not account for you. You have to have a way to get out of the situation once you're abandoned there and then be able to go on the run without any resources because there there was no evidence that they had any money to use. So how are you going to do all those things? It's not like you go diving with 10 grand cash. Right. And I don't think 10 grand cash is going to get you very far in the grand scheme of things when you're, you know, trying to live out your life. Yeah, it's True. just crazy. Yeah, that that uh, that's like one of my worst nightmares, just being left in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. So one of the other theories um, kind of goes to the diaries. So Dom, Tom and Eileen both kept diaries, which were read completely by the police, the coroner, and the families. But that was it. However, someone leaked parts of the diaries to the press, and those Parts that were released or leaked had some references to death, including um, passages that talked about wanting to die certain ways, like I want to die quickly and painlessly or things like that. This caused some people to think that the couple was suicidal. The family says the references to death found in the diaries were taken out of context, though. 
the bad thing was that these passages were later read in court. So that kind of aided the theory of, oh, well, they were suicidal, which is, according to the family, just nonsense. But that directly contradicts what was in the journal. They said they want to die quickly and like painlessly drowning doesn't seem like the right path for that. And neither does getting eaten by sharks. Nope. Also not a thing that I would want to have happen to me. So yeah, it's just weird. Um, In November, 1999, Nairn, who was the skipper and the co-owner of the company, Jack Nairn, pleaded not guilty to criminal negligence in his criminal trial. The defense attorney brought up the idea of the murder-suicide by reading those journal passages and suggested the couple was still alive. So he was just throwing everything that he could think of to bring in reasonable doubt and say, oh, no, they either killed themselves or they're still alive and they're out there floating around. And... It must have worked to some degree because Nairn was ultimately found not guilty of the criminal charges. However, yeah. Uh, However, the Outer Edge Dive Company later pleaded guilty in a civil court to negligence and was fined for workplace safety violations. And basically all of that, the bad press the safety violation fines and everything. Uh, that is why the company is out of business. And so if you go to Australia, you don't have to worry about them leaving you in the middle of the ocean. It would be somebody else that possibly left you there. <laughs> but I know no. you're not going diving, so that is not a big danger for you. Yeah, I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> right. So based on everything, stricter regulations have been instated in the Queensland region regarding dive trips and safety regulations to hopefully prevent something like this ever happening again. And that is my bizarre and potentially brutal and very questionable outcome as to like what really happened to these poor folks. Yeah, I don't think anyone can say for certain, but I don't think it was good, whatever happened. No, but it made me, watching the movie again, it made me realize in the movie they talk about, or they show in the movie them taking off their vests because like, the wife decided that in the movie... The husband gets eaten by sharks and she decides she doesn't want that fate. So she takes all her her gear off and just goes under the water and drowns herself. I don't. Yeah. If if I was in that situation, I think I'd just lay on my back with the the vest on and just kick for as long as I could until I died of exhaustion. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So Declan, what is the brutal story that you have to share with us today? 
today I will be talking about Israel Keys. Okay, I think I know who this is. And I'm not sure, but I think I do, which is like terrifying if it's the one I'm thinking of. So please tell me. So Israel Keys was born in Richmond, Utah on January 7th, 1978 to Heidi and John Jeffrey Keys. He was the second child of 10 born to a large family. Israel was raised Mormon until he was five. This is also when he moved near Coville, Washington. The cabin Israel and his family moved to was a one-room cabin without running water or electricity. After leaving the Mormon church, Israel and his family attended a Christian church that practiced white supremacy. Since the cabin they lived in was so small and offered little creature comforts, Israel and his siblings were forced to sleep in tents and hunt for their food. Israel hunted as a hobby, however, his version of hunting was different than most. One day, Israel hunted and killed a deer and invited his friends to watch him skin it alive. As you can imagine, this made the kids in town very afraid of Israel, and so they all avoided him and just kind of treated him as an outcast because why Why is this kid yeah. cutting up live deer? Yeah, that's gross. Yeah, gross. Ew. Uh-huh. No. Yuck. His other hobbies included shooting BB guns at houses, starting fires, and breaking into homes. So a real stand-up guy. Nice guy. Could we move next to him? That'd be awesome. Jeez. <laughs> Another hobby of Israel's included violence. In 1996, Julie Harris, a Special Olympic skier, went missing and it is believed that Keyes was responsible for her murder. In 1997, a trailer was burned down, killing one woman. Her daughter was reporting missing, however, her remains were discovered in the woods later on. Keyes did not admit to the murders, but did admit to the trailer arson, so it, it's likely that he, he committed the murders. So, somebody died, and there was a fire, and he's like, yeah, I set the fire, but I didn't kill the people. Those, were, those people were already dead. That's what he wants people to believe? Yes. Okay. Doesn't, doesn't make I'm much sense. Gonna. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Not going to believe it. Following this was the sexual assault of a teenage girl in Maupin, Oregon. However, no one was convicted for this crime. I Where's Maupin oh, at? Okay. Is that up north? I don't know. It's like northeast, okay. I think. And I know people who've had to go up there for travel football games, but I've never been there. Oh my gosh. Okay. Shortly after this, the Keys family moved to Smyrna, Maine. A while after the move, Israel confessed his beliefs of atheism to his parents. This caused his parents to kick him out and excommunicate him from the family, so he, they wouldn't let any of his siblings contact him at all. In July 1998, Keyes enlisted in the Army. He was relocated to New Jersey. In 2001, Keyes was arrested for drunk driving, and he, he was later honorably discharged from the Army, I believe, for this. 
After leaving the army, Keyes moved to Nia Bay, Washington. And it is believed that he continued his spree of violence after leaving the military. In February 2012, Samantha Koenig was working at the Common Grounds coffee stand in Anchorage, Alaska. A man in a ski mask approached the stand and robbed Samantha at gunpoint. He forced his way into the stand where he zip-tied her hands before forcing her in his car. Keyes took her phone and sent a fake text to her boyfriend saying, Hey, I'm spending a couple days with my friends. Let my dad know. This was kind of weird to her boyfriend, so uh, he immediately contacted her dad and uh, went over to try and figure out what was going on. That's nice that the boyfriend was a little suspicious of the text, like... A lot of times you hear stories like that and they're like, okay, that's normal. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't she just tell her dad? Why would she make the boyfriend tell the dad? Right. Uh, Israel took her to a cabin he had where he tied her up in his shed. After demanding her address, Keys eventually made his way to the property to steal her debit card from her boyfriend's truck. While Keyes was doing this, Samantha's boyfriend caught Keyes breaking into his truck and was able to chase him off. But oh, they didn't that's know good. he was the person who had kidnapped her. Right, yeah, they wouldn't know that. So after being chased off, Israel made his way back to the cabin where he sexually assaulted and strangled Samantha. Israel took her lifeless body and sewed her eyes open to give her the appearance of being alive and took a picture of her corpse holding a newspaper from February 17th, 2012. Yes, the, the picture was taken 17 days after she was tacked in the coffee shack. Oh my gosh. Keys typed up a ransom note and left the photo and note at a local park. He then texted her boyfriend with the location of the letter. A few days later, Keyes dismembered her body and drove to Matanuska Lake where he dumped her body. Is that Keys still in Alaska? Ins- uh, I, I believe so, yes. Okay. Keyes had instructed the family to deposit the ransom money into her checking account. This would allow Keys to go to the ATM and pull out the the ransom money. But Oh, because it was most, her account, right? Yeah, and he had her uh ATM card. He had her Oh but right. Okay. I don't know any uh teenage teenagers who have a thirty thousand dollar limit on their ATM card. So Good point. He's gonna have to make a <laughs> I couple don't think trips. he thought that through too much. When Keyes went to retrieve the money, his vehicle was identified and he was later pulled over. Inside his car, police found a gun, a ski mask, and Samantha's phone and debit card. He was promptly arrested. Yay! This is when, yes, good good for the police for catching him. Right. This is when Keyes admitted to killing Samantha and seven other victims around the country, as well as stalking victims and planting kill kits near places he wanted to strike. Oh my These, yuck. Th- there have been a couple uh, of his kill kits discovered around the U.S., and they all have generally like the same stuff in them, 
like there was one found in New York and it had a 22 caliber pistol, a silencer, a ski mask and some zip ties. Wow. I didn't know anyone found the kits. That's amazing. And how creepy would that be? I know one was found in a, it was near a river in New York. And I think there was another one found in like the Midwest, but I'm not positive. Oh my gosh. And if you just find a bucket with a bunch of stuff in it, I mean. That'd be horrific. It's kind of hard to connect it to him, I guess, but it's still freaky to find that. It is. And I think in all actuality, like if I dug up a bucket and it had those things in it, I probably I would think it was weird, but I probably wouldn't think it was like sinister or anything. I'd be like, oh, that's weird. Why would somebody put this stuff out in the middle of nowhere and dig it in a hole? I mean, yeah, I do now because I heard the rest of the story. But if I didn't know the story, I'd probably just be like, what a weirdo to put a just bucket full of stuff in here. Yeah, but it, all those things are things you use in a crime. So, yes, I, I'd be, I'd definitely get out of the area if I found that bucket. I might think that the person had already committed the crime and was trying to dispose of the evidence. Mm-hmm. Not they that were it found hadn't in been like, used yet. They were found in uh, waterproof buckets, though, with like lids on them and everything. So oh. He was, like, trying to keep them nice and orderly. So, like, a kill prepper. Yep. He'd just go and stash them somewhere if he, like, was stalking someone. And it's just so creepy. That's awful. That's awful. While incarcerated, Israel Keys took his own life in 2012. Oh. That Gee, is my I feel so story. sad. That is yeah. very brutal. I I wish cool. he didn't take his own life so that he could spend the rest of it in jail. Yes. And it would have been nice if he could have told who some of the other victims were so that maybe other families would get closure because I'm guessing that maybe they were unsolved. Otherwise, they would have been like, oh, it was this guy. Oh, so uh, inside his cell, when they found him dead, they found a couple things. They found his suicide note and a like a drawing that had 11 skulls on it. So some believe that his kill count was up to 11, but it's never been it's never been verified. And, and he can't tell us what a jackass. Yeah, fucker. So, Declan, tell me what you have for a chaser today. So, I just, uh, right before this podcast, I was looking on Netflix, and I just saw that Patton Oswalt has a new stand-up special. He does? That's yes, awesome. I love him. Yeah, he's one of my favorites, and uh, he, he took a little break for a while, and I'm glad he's back. I love Patton Oswalt in his little bit that he talks about dreaming and how it's like this 
big room and there's things around on other sides of the door and how when you open the door and there's like clowns that come tumbling out or scary things that come chasing you and how your body reacts to that or how your brain reacts to that when you've taken Ambien. It's pretty funny. (laughs) If you want to listen to it, go check it out on YouTube because I'm sure it's on there. Yeah, that's one of his older older bits, wasn't it? I think it's been several years, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it makes me laugh every time. <laughs> what kind of chaser do you have for us today, Mom? My chaser for today is an Instagram clip that I saw. Well, it was a reel on Instagram. You know, one of my favorite bands is Papa Roach. And they put on their page that somebody had managed to contact the lead singer, Jacoby, and got him to announce that this couple was pregnant and recorded it. And it was for the sole purpose of the couple announcing their pregnancy to the parents, Oh, wow. That's cool. So it was really cool. I mean, I'm not doing it any kind of justice because it was showing the family and they're like, hi, I'm Jacoby and you know who I am. And I just wanted to say congratulations because you're going to be grandparents. And (laughs) they had no idea. They were super shocked. And then they're like, wait, how did you get him to do that? Because, you know, he's a star and, you know. Famous rock star. (laughs) Right. And he actually said it specifically to them. Like he said their names and he was greeting them. And it was just really cool that to see a famous rock star do something like that for someone that just needed a little help to say congratulations. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's super sweet. So thanks for talking with me today, Declan, and telling me that brutal, scary story. I appreciate it. It's always nice to hang out and chat with you. So I love you. I love you too. And thank you for horrifying me even more with open waters. Any chance I can get. (laughs) Alrighty, folks. Thanks for listening today. Thanks for listening and supporting our podcast. We would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want to give us a five-star rating, we would forever be grateful. You can contact us at our email via thebrutalandbizarre at gmail.com or on our Instagram at thebrutal underscore bizarre underscore boozy.